a lot of people have been talking about how great Disney Plus's marketing strategy was. And as I kind of watched it go down on social media, all I could think about was they really must have gotten Don Draper to do this for them. My first job, I was in-house at a fur company with this old pro copywriter, Greek, named Teddy. And Teddy told me the most important idea in advertising is new creates an itch you simply put your product in there as a kind of calamine lotion but he also talked about a deeper bond with the product nostalgia it's delicate but potent Hey fam, welcome to a new episode of Stay Watching. I bet you missed me. I'm Larry, and I'm sorry I've been away for a while. Um, I had to overcome a little bit of a cold, and that left my voice a little bit sour for the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, it's one of those things that most people probably would not have been able to tell, but I would have hated it. And this is my podcast. This is my show, so I want to make sure that at least for me, I think it is of the quality that it needs to be for all of you. So obviously there's a lot of stuff that I did not get to talk about over the last couple of weeks. There's a lot of big things that happen in entertainment and hopefully I'll be able to catch up on some of those as we move into the last month of the year. Yes, as I record this, it is about to be December um, and it's just wild to think about. Um, but in the meantime, today, I really want to talk to you all about nostalgia. So as I kind of alluded to at the top of this episode, Disney Plus dropped. We had a bunch of kind of movies that traded on nostalgia that have come out in the last few months. So I just wanted to share a few quick thoughts that I had about nostalgia and why in some cases it works and in others it doesn't. And, you know, a, a lot specifically about the type of nostalgia that kind of works for me. You know, what are the things that I get nostalgic about and will actually get me to tune into something? So hang in there. I'll be right back. So to get things started, I, I don't want to assume that everybody knows what nostalgia is. So we're just going to define it real quick. And so nostalgia, noun, a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal association. And uh, let's take that a step further. Another slight definition of it, something done or presented in order to evoke feelings of nostalgia. And so basically the easiest way to, to really think about this is we want you to feel a certain way about something. We want you to remember something from your past in order to enjoy this thing. And so, you know, 
part of the reason why, you know, you might be reading the episode title and you're like, huh, Disney Plus, like, what is it about Disney Plus that that kind of got so many people excited about it? Well, on Twitter, one of the things that Disney decided to do in prepping people for the launch of Disney Plus was to share their back catalog. So what they did was they would do these long Twitter threads where they would just post, oh, we got this movie and this movie and this movie and this movie and this TV show and this TV show and everything, this, this is stuff dating back to like the 1940s through today. And, you know, you look at it and you're just like, oh man, you know, no matter where you might be at life, there's something there that people can say, oh man, I remember growing up and watching this. You know, I, I, I know, like I saw the Herbie movies on there. And for me, I grew up at this weird time where, you know, early 90s, we had like all of the like, you know, I'm, I'm going to refer to Herbie as Agent, even though there's like a lot older stuff on there. You know, we had all of kind of the older stuff that we were watching. We also had like, you know, we had stuff from the 60s, 70s, 80s that we were watching. And then we also had the new stuff from the 90s. So, you know, looking at that catalog and seeing stuff like Darkwing Duck and DuckTales and Chippendale and Tailspin, it's all of these things that really make you remember when you were a kid, when you were watching, you know, Disney Afternoons on ABC or whatever channel you were watching. They have stuff like the X-Men cartoon and Spider-Man on there. So it's like, oh, remember, remember your Saturday mornings watching your superhero cartoons and eating a bowl of cereal. All of what they are doing here is trying to kind of get you to trade on that idea of that nostalgia. They want to put you back in that place of, remember when you were a kid remember when you loved these things well you can have all of those again you can re you can go through those memories and build new ones and kind of have this new experience and share that with more people now and i think it's it's a really kind of brilliant strategy from their perspective because disney has always kind of used this idea of the vault and the things that were kind of locked away in the vault and you know you might have loved this thing, but you only have a limited time to enjoy it or engage with it or watch it. And in a sense, Disney Plus allows them to kind of unlock that vault. And so, you know, on top of that feeling of, oh, I'm transporting myself back to when I was a kid, I'm also getting to see stuff that it's so it was so rare to see. And, you know, unless unless my family was smart enough to go out and buy the VHS or the DVD or the Blu-ray when they released, you might have missed your opportunity to own some of this stuff. And so in this way, they are kind of opening up their back catalog. They're opening up all of us to kind of this nostalgic feeling to, to get on board and really hoping that, that that brings people in. You know, and I know that, you know, Disney Plus put out their, their numbers for early subscribers, which is, it, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a weird number because what you have there is a mix of the folks that are getting the service for for free, the folks that have signed up for um, you know their their trial period and everything like that. But still, 10 million people is nothing to laugh at. 10 million people who really want to experience a whole bunch of things from their past because you know honestly there was only really one. You know, technically speaking, there were what three new programs that were on Disney Plus, but really it is being sold on the strength of Disney's back catalog. Sure, you know, The Mandalorian was there, but even then, you know, so 
again, I, I have to say full disclosure, I did not fall for the Disney nostalgic hype train. I, I will go into that a little bit later. But even with The Mandalorian, you know, there's certain levels of nostalgia that you're dealing with here. So Star Wars in itself already brings back a nostalgic feeling. The whole idea that people are trying to get on board with, with um, The Mandalorian in the way that its production design is done is that we want to go back to a different type of Star Wars. You know, we want to go back to the grungier, dirtier looking Star Wars, the more you know, and again, I, I don't necessarily agree with this because I think I think a lot of the Star Wars that we have been getting is is good lately. Um, but, you know, I think a big part of it is like people wanting to be transported back to kind of how they remember Star Wars or how they remember seeing Star Wars. You know, and, it, and it's it's interesting that they would pick a Mandalorian character who is similar to Boba Fett, who, again, a character that doesn't have a whole lot going on, but the nostalgic people the nostalgic feeling that people have about his character caused them to have a very different reaction to him. And so seeing a character that's similar to them already kind of triggers those nostalgia flags for them. It's also, you know, best I can tell, it's a Western, you know? And so that also is kind of transporting people back to this time when, you know, all right, maybe maybe you grew up watching The Rifleman or, you know, um, or you were a big uh, Clint Eastwood, man with no name fan. And, you know, so you you start to get those vibes from what you're seeing with the Mandalorian. And so, you know, that is another kind of tactic. But if you look at Star Wars more broadly, you know, one of the biggest complaints that people had about The Force Awakens was it felt like so much of a rehash of the original Star Wars. And agree or disagree, um, that's intentional. The, the whole idea there is you want people to kind of latch onto things that they find reminiscent, you know, give them a little bit of new, but give them that nostalgic feeling too, just like Don Draper said, because then you have them, you know, I'm watching this new thing. It looks better than the old thing that I remember, but it still feels like the old thing. It makes me excited about it. I want to see where it goes. Every time I'm in the theater or watching at home, I'm going to have that same feeling that I did when I was a kid or the first time that I watched it. And sure, sometimes it's hard to, to recapture that feeling and it's never quite going to be the same, but if they can at least get close, then they have us. And I think that's something that we, we really see with what Disney's output has been recently. You know, take the live action remakes of most of their films that they're doing. You know, the idea is, hey, you know, we're gonna present almost the same exact thing. We're gonna change little bits and pieces here and certain things like Jungle Book, we might take out most of the songs, you know, same thing that's gonna happen with Mulan coming up. Beauty and the Beast, we might add a few extra scenes. We might, you know, pretend that this character is gay, um, even though we don't really do anything with that. Um, you know, uh, we'll, you know, Lion King will mostly leave it the same. We'll make Timon kind of a nihilist, but but largely it's the same. And the idea is they want to get people who really loved these products as a kid and get them to come into these things and, and to watch it all over again and to spend their money all over again and potentially introduce a new group of people to these characters that they can then bring back and kind of say, hey, so, you know, I took you to see this version of The Lion King or whatever, you know, still still a, a good film by, by 
you know, most accounts, you know, sure there, it left you wanting, it didn't quite have the magic of the first one, but because that nostalgia got you through the door and now you're thinking about it, hey, why don't I either buy the Lion King, um, you know, or fire it up so that I can show someone else who has never seen that original Lion King what they were missing. You know, and so now you're kind of in that nostalgic vehicle with them. You're wanting to stay in the world that they've provided you, and you're gonna want to kind of move around that in every which way. You know, it's 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 really interesting. Part of the thing that we've been seeing with the rise of superhero movies is, is very much the same thing. You know, so one of the things that we often don't think about when we think about why, you know, these superhero movies have been so kind of important is, a lot of people have kind of been talking about how with the rise of the MCU, with stuff like, you know, the Dark Knight trilogy, um, you know, and some of the, you know, what we'll call the better films, a lot of it is people feeling like the stuff that I used to read in comic books as a kid or the cartoons I used to watch, they're finally available to watch on the big screen. It finally looks like, you know, kind of what I saw in those pages or on my television screen, you know? And, and I, I know I've definitely communicated that when I've talked about these, you know, movies in the past, you know, something like Joker, you know, I, one of the most profitable films of all time now, um, you know, a little bit different, but it does share kind of some of those similarities. So even though it's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say that it's, it's a bit different in that it's divergent from the source material, but it plays on nostalgia in a different way. So it's, it's set in this dirty Gotham that reminds us of what New York used to be, you know? And so there's a, there's a bit of nostalgia there. There's a late night show in that universe that looks, you know, it, it's styled after old late night shows. And so they use nostalgia in a different way because, you know, it's, it's kind of a period piece and it makes people who kind of grew up in that time, it, it puts them in that world again. And so that's a different type of use of nostalgia in this way. Um, you know, or, or I guess I should say it's the same type of usage of nostalgia. It's just, it's executed in a different way, but you know, all of what we've been seeing with a lot of these comic properties are, are kind of working around that idea. You take this language that people are used to. So like the idea of the splash page, splash pages are something that people who grew up reading comic books, you know, love and understand. And, um, you know, for those of you who don't really read comic books, the idea of the splash page, it's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a centerfold. And you know, what it is, is you have this entire spread all your heroes, you know, the action, everything that's going on. And so one of the things that Marvel and the MCU were able to do, and, and to some extent, some of what DC has been able to do, um, you know, maybe not as successfully, but in some cases has been able to take that idea and kind of replicate it on screen. And so what you're actually, what's actually happening to you when you're watching, you know, that big screen MCU film, and you see that shot of all of the Marvel, you know, heroes running at Thanos and his legion is you're seeing that splash page from when you were reading a comic book as a kid and you're feeling like a kid again. You're you're kind of basking in that nostalgia. And I and I think that's something that's that's really interesting and that's worked really well um for, for what they've been trying to do with this. Um, you know, in other cases, it doesn't work 
quite as well. Nostalgia is not necessarily a guarantee that people are going to want to engage with your properties. You know, so uh, full disclosure, I did not see the new Charlie's Angels. I'll be honest, I have no interest in Charlie's Angels. I, I personally think it is a weird franchise that should have been forgotten. I, I don't know what people wanted it to be. I don't know if anybody had any expectations for it. Clearly nobody wanted to see it. Um, but one of the things that, that kind of happened with this film is that um, Elizabeth Banks, you know, after its failure, kind of wanted to make some comments and, and she kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, it, it might be kind of this this anti-feminist wave um, that is what caused this movie to fail. And, you know, I, I think feminism is a discussion for, for another day, another episode of the podcast, um, you know, because I think those feelings do exist. And I think there are people that feel that, that do feel like that would have affected their enjoyment of this film but they weren't going to see it anyway. So we just have to take those people off the table. They aren't the ones that you were gunning for. Charlie's Angels, what, the original series came out in like the 70s? Was it the most well-remembered series? The last time it had any sort of reboot was, what, 2011 with a failed TV reboot? Before that, the, the future film came out in like 2000 and its sequel was 2003 or 2004 none of which were you know that well received I mean, people kind of have this again nostalgic view of those 2000s movies especially um you know charlie's angels full throttle uh, they're not good movies but so you have that where some people are like oh you know it's kind of camp but it's camp perfection Full Throttle was the pinnacle of Charlie's Angels. This thing didn't need to get remade. You have other people that don't even know what Charlie's Angels is. You know, you have an entire generation of moviegoers who are too young to actually know what this franchise is. And, you know, it's kind of hard to kind of build that cachet around it. And so some people probably didn't have the nostalgic feelings that they needed to have in order to engage with this property. And then you have people that, you know, hey, they remember Charlie's Angels. They remember it not being that good. And were like, why do we need this? You know, and so while they're trying, while they were trying to kind of trade on this nostalgia and the idea that, hey, people will remember Charlie's Angels. We're doing an updated version of it. We're giving you the new with that potent nostalgia. The problem is they misjudged how much nostalgia people actually have for that property. And I think that same thing happened with a film that I did see. I, I saw it early and I did actually like um, Dr. Sleep. So Dr. Sleep is one of the most interesting cases in filmmaking that I have seen recently. So basically Dr. Sleep, it's, it's this kind of dual purpose thing. It is a sequel to Stephen King's The Shining, the book, but it is also a sequel to the Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining. 
you know, and, and that might be weird conceptually to kind of wrap your head around, but basically the short version of the backstory of this is Stephen King wrote this book, The Shining. It had certain specific themes that when Stanley Kubrick adapted to film, he kind of dropped a lot of it. He changed some elements around. He was not focused on the actual storytelling. Um, and a lot more effort was spent in making this audiovisual kind of masterpiece. You know, having seen The Shining again, I'm sorry if anybody listening to this is like the biggest Shining fan. The storytelling in The Shining is kind of awful in a lot of ways. Like, yes, there are some really good character things that are done to tell specific stories, um, especially with Jack, um, you know, but at the same time, like there's a lot of threads that don't quite come together well, characters' names changing, and you know, sure, you can make the argument that all of that is purposeful, but I think it's just sloppy, and you know, Kubrick probably didn't care because he was like, this is beautiful and people need to see it. But anyway, at the time that it released, the original Shining, was not what we actually think of it being today. Um, the Shining and Kubrick, Kubrick was actually nominated for a Razzie uh, for his direction on The Shining. But over time, The Shining became this kind of cult classic in the horror kind of genre. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe calling it a cult classic isn't quite right because it is a genre defining yet somewhat defying film. Um, it's something that it's influenced a lot of work that has come after it. It's influenced a lot of directors and creators um, in, in kind of shaping their visions. And so it's a big deal within kind of the horror landscape. The problem is The Shining probably didn't make that huge of a mark on the general population. And so you fast forward to 2019, you have a new film coming out. It's Dr. Sleep. It's starring Ewan McGregor. And he is going to be playing Danny Torrance, who is a little kid from The Shining. And what becomes of his life after his experience in the Overlook Hotel? And, you know, on paper, it's an interesting idea. We're giving you something a little bit new. The way that I have described this film to people, it's what if you made The Shining into a superhero movie? Because essentially, and this, this is not a spoiler if you've not seen it, um, because it's mostly in the trailer. Basically, Ewan McGregor is helping protect, save a girl with The Shining from this team of vampires. This is the easiest way to express it. Um, you know, and so there's, there are what we'll call superpowers. There are, you know, there's a lot of new going on, but within all of that, there are these allusions to an eventual reconnection with elements of the original Shining, um, specifically the Overlook Hotel, as well as some other elements that I, I will kind of leave for you for when you watch this film and you know again this film was a little over long but the thing is what this film really tries to do is to tries to tell its own new story set in this world that we know 
but then it pins so much of kind of the meat of the film, the high octane, you know, the high, the most climatic pieces of this film are tied to this original, which, you know, from hearing from other people, a lot of people haven't seen, you know? And so for people that don't quite have the nostalgia for The Shining, which they are counting on in selling this film, because if you look at a lot of the advertising for Dr. Sleep, it's using imagery directly from The Shining. But if people haven't seen The Shining, if people don't have those positive feelings about The Shining, what does that do for them? It does nothing. And so what you see is Dr. Sleep, even though it might be a competently made movie, on an adequate sequel to both The Shining, the film, and The Shining, the book, it never quite takes off. It doesn't make money at the box office because people don't know what to do with it because they don't have that reverence for the original. And I think that's something that we're, we're seeing a lot more of, you know, you're going to, we talk about this idea that we are in kind of this era where you have a lot of remakes and sequels and reboots and all that. And a lot of them probably will fail dependent on how much nostalgia we actually have for the properties that they're based off of. And I think it's something that we really need to reckon with, you know, obviously, like I've talked about in the past, like I really like to see original works, you know, I'm, but I also like to see things that are based off of other things, or I do like to see reboots. I do like to see reimaginings done well, but at the same time, we need to be picking the right stuff. The premise itself needs to be pretty good. The nostalgic property that we're picking needs to be something that's resonant enough that people will really get on board with it. And it, it, it just needs to make sense. And I think, you know, again, going back to the Disney example, I think Disney is a studio, like them or not, think they're evil or not, that does nostalgia better than anybody. You know, I, I honestly can't think of a studio that's doing nostalgia better than they are right now. The, and the, the honestly, the closest place that I can think of that's doing it as well as Disney is probably Nintendo right now. And I know video games, completely different. You didn't expect me to go there. But when you look at stuff like, you know, each Christmas season, we're getting a mini version of different consoles or on the Switch, you can have your virtual NES or virtual SNES. You are taking people back to their first system or back to their first experiences with video games and you're giving it to them on the go on a handheld or whatever. You know, you look at stuff like, you know, just I can play how many different Mario games now and I can feel like I'm playing, I can play the original Mario Brothers on a brand new system. That's the kind of stuff that that does really well. And and the thing is, they're smart about it. They make it so that it's not expensive. So there's not this huge barrier to entry to getting on board with it. Same thing with Disney Plus. Their monthly subscription is relatively low compared to some of their competitors. And, you know, especially for the back catalog that you're getting. And that's the thing. So it's like, how do you kind of meld giving people the nostalgia they want in the newish package that you want them to see with a little bit of the glitz, even if the product isn't 100% perfect. You know, I think both Disney and Nintendo kind of suffer from this a little bit where the way that they present their 
their offering isn't quite perfect. They have issues, but it's not bad enough to prevent people from wanting to really re-engage with that nostalgic feeling that they're getting from the property. And I just think it's, you know, again, some people might think it's a little bit evil, you know, these, these corporations. Um, but from a marketing perspective, from an entertainment perspective, it's kind of brilliant, you know, and they, they are doing a relatively good job with it. Um, the problem is, is this all we're going to be getting from them? You know, is everything that we're going to be seeing going forward just going to be trading on nostalgia or can we get some new stuff? And when we get some new stuff, can we actually support it? You know, and I think that's the that's going to be the ultimate challenge, you know, as exciting as something like Disney Plus is, you know, and I talked about this at the top, I really wanted to get into why I didn't go for it. While I love a lot of the Disney back catalog, I've spent an awful lot of time with some of those properties. I mean, we owned most, you know, I was lucky enough to own most of the Disney VHSs that my family wanted when we were growing up had Star Wars on VHS. I have the Blu-rays of the Star Wars trilogy. I own most of the Marvel movies that I actually like, um, with the exception of a couple here and there, which I probably will be purchasing at some point. But there's nothing else really on the platform that I need to get right now. You know, sure, I would like to watch The Mandalorian, but I'm not gonna pay for one show, you know? There are the new Marvel Disney Plus shows coming up, but I'll be honest, like I'm frankly not that interested in most of them. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what they end up being, but for me, they're not really a draw. Like I want to see real original content and I want to pay for real original content. Um, you know, it's especially with something that I'm going to be paying monthly for paying a monthly fee for. You know, and, and it, it's it's tough because, you know, while I want to have that nostalgic feeling with everybody else, I just don't think it's worth it right now. So those are my thoughts about nostalgia and entertainment. Some of the things that I think have been working really well. Some of the things that I think have not been working so well. I would really love to hear from you. What are your thoughts? What are your takes? Are there certain types of nostalgia that work for you? Are there certain ones that don't work for you? Hit me up on social media at LarryTron pretty much everywhere on social media or send me an email Larry at LM2photo.com. Again, like I, I really love having these types of conversations. I really want to hear what you think about them. So definitely drop your thoughts. Um, in the next coming weeks, uh, we have, we are fast approaching. I should say we're fast approaching the Christmas season at the time that I am recording this and Christmas time also means that we are in the kind of awardsy season so we have a lot more films that are coming out that are kind of 
you know, generating some awards buzz. So I might be doing a few kind of Mondays at the movies, maybe, um, or at least more film reviews for some of those things that are coming out, just to share my thoughts on some of the bigger awards buzz films that are going to be dropping. Um, on top of that, there are a few topics that I'm probably going to want to touch on. Um, you know, one of them being, uh, I'm, I'm trying to work on an essay about this, but I might also do a recorded podcast about it, uh, where I talk about one of the big themes within film this year, which is class, um, and capitalism. Uh, it's something that we've seen pop up in a bunch of films this year. And so I do want to kind of start to have that conversation. Um, so, you know, again, like I said, I'm going to be writing that mostly, but I might also still want to do a little bit of a podcast episode about it. Um, we've also had some really big movies come out that I have not had a chance to talk about on the podcast yet, including, um, Parasite, uh, which is an amazing film if you have not had a chance to see it. Pain and Glory, as well as Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, uh, which I think I, I definitely want to, now that it is releasing on Netflix, I think as I'm recording this, today is the day that it launches on Netflix. Um, I do kind of want to talk about The Irishman in the context of Martin Scorsese's uh, essay in the New York times, uh, which I have not had a chance to go back and talk about since recording my Martin Scorsese episode. Um, so I was a little harsh on Scorsese, I think, because, you know, realistically, I think I do share a lot of agreement with some of the things that he was saying or trying to say, um, and I, I really would like to kind of revisit that while also critiquing his newest film, which, you know, I will say that I did like. Um, I saw it in theaters, did not get up to go to the bathroom for three and a half hours. I thought it was completely worth it. I thought he told a good story, but I, I do think there were some things that were imperfect about it. Um, I, Goodfellas is still my favorite Scorsese film. There, I said it. Um, but yeah, um, so so that's some of what you have to look forward to. As always, if you have topics that you want to hear me talk about, hit me up on social media at Larry Tron, pretty much everywhere on social media, or send me an email, Larry at LM2photo.com. And that's it for another stay watching. So it's been good. It felt good to be back here recording and talking to all of you. I hope you enjoyed it. I don't know how many of you actually listened to this point in the episode, but I love you. Stay watching, fam. Peace.